As I mentioned before, today we celebrate Baptism of the Lord Sunday, in which we remember Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. It's interesting because our gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they give very little information concerning what happens after the birth of John and Jesus. Luke is actually the only writer who shares a story of Jesus as a child, a 12-year-old. Maybe you know that story. It was customary for them to go to the temple as a family a few times a year. And Luke tells us that Jesus went with his family, a caravan, so to speak, And they went to Jerusalem, and upon staying in Jerusalem, his family left. And as they left, they forgot that Jesus was not with them. Now, I don't know about all of you, but some of you have probably been binge-watching Christmas movies over the holidays, and one of my favorite Christmas movies to binge-watch is Home Alone. And if you remember that movie, Kevin, played by Macaulay Culkin's family, forget that he is actually home when they leave on their Christmas vacation together, and his mom freaks out and screams his name, and then has to get on an airplane to come back. And everything crazy ensues throughout the movie while they're gone. In the same way, Mary, I believe, freaked out when she realized that her child was not with them and rushed back to Jerusalem only to find him teaching in the temple. Other than this story, the writers remain silent about the childhood of John and Jesus. They simply begin to share the stories of their ministries and when they begin. So John grows up and lives into his calling by preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins in the Judean wilderness. Crowds of people came out to hear his message, and after hearing his message, they were baptized in the Jordan River by him. Now, when I say baptized, that sounds like a tribal word for those of us who are in church, but not everybody knows what that is. What I'm saying is, is that people came to him into the river and they would confess their sins, begging for God's mercy. And John would take them and he would immerse them under the water and bring them back up out of the water. This was symbolic of a ritual cleansing, of a spiritual cleansing. For John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, but it was also met with God's forgiveness. This baptism was a sign of God's cleansing, of the forgiveness of their sins, which led them to faithfully live in anticipation of God's Messiah to come. John's responsibility, John's call, was to prepare for the way of the Lord, for everyone to see God's salvation in Jesus. But I have to tell you, John's sermon was not so warm and fuzzy Imagine if you came in this morning and I addressed you in the beginning of my message by saying, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Now, I don't know about you, but that wouldn't make me feel very welcome. And if I were probably in someone else's church, I probably wouldn't show back up the next week. John is preaching a message to shock and awe his audience because his audience are a bunch of Jewish people who feel entitled to God by being born Jewish. You see, they know that they belong to the covenant community because God has claimed them as as his very own. But their birthright as the children of God doesn't give them permission to live in ways that are contrary to being God's people. 
God has claimed them, and their story is rooted in the Exodus, as we read in the Old Testament, of God calling them out of slavery and oppression and being their God. And God gave them commandments and told them, this is how you are to live. So these people know what God expects of them. But many of them are doing the total opposite of that. So after baptizing them in the Jordan River, many of them asked John, what should we do then? And so he gives them practical advice. He says, share with those who don't have anything. Don't be a part of the exploitative culture around you. The same goes for tax collectors and soldiers that were enlisted in Herod Antipas' army. He tells them, don't collect more than you are required. Don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. You see, even though they find themselves under Roman rule, which happened to be during a time called the Pax Romana, a time of peace, that peace was not a true peace at all. The Romans took advantage of them economically, oppressing them with high taxation, as well as reminding them that if they revolted in any way against them, that their soldiers would kill them and destroy their homes. You could say that there was a peace through the domineering threat of violence. And you would think that these Jewish people who suffered under such oppression wouldn't turn around and do the same to their own people. But apparently, according to John, it was so. So his message to them was a message and well, it was a warning to protect them, to recenter them on being the people that God had called them to be. To John, it was not enough to physically be the people of God. They also needed spiritually to be the people of God. And their actions would determine if they were a tree that produced good fruit or if they were simply dead and needed to be cut down and thrown into the fire. So many who heard his message, they were moved into action, repenting of their sins and accepting John's baptism. And they even wondered if John might possibly be the Messiah. But John made it very clear that he was not saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John acknowledges his authority by God to, to prepare the way for Jesus, but he also acknowledges his lowly status in comparison to the Messiah. You see, in his day, a disciple would untie the sandals for his master, or a slave would do it for a male guest who visited his master. John doesn't even consider himself qualified to untie Jesus' sandals. To him, his call is clear. Prepare the people with a baptism of repentance to receive Jesus' baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire. They will be washed by water first, and then they will be ready for a baptism that only the Christ can give. John is simply preparing them for Jesus. But subsequently, Jesus' ministry begins with his baptism by John. And Luke says it just so simply when he says, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. 
And the voice came from heaven, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Luke gives us this image of Jesus as sort of just one of the commoners standing among the people in the crowds as they were coming forward to be baptized by John. And Jesus is just another Jewish person who steps up and has John baptize him. Jesus doesn't come to repent or to confess his sins. We believe that Jesus was sinless. Instead, he comes to the same waters to identify with his own people, to mark his ministry, and so that God might announce the Messiah's arrival. So the Holy Spirit comes upon him, anointing him and declaring God's presence among all of Israel. And you know that the Holy Spirit has already been at work behind the scenes. We know that because earlier in Luke's gospel, we get the the stories of the conception of Jesus and the angel coming to Mary and telling her that she will give birth to a son because the Holy Spirit is providing this conception. And we also know that the Holy Spirit is working her cousin Elizabeth, who was barren and couldn't have a child and was up in age. But God allowed her womb to be fruitful in the birth of John. And now the Holy Spirit, physically presented as a dove, rests on Jesus as he prays from the waters of the Jordan River, the waters that the Israelites crossed to enter into the promised land. And just as they entered into the promised land, Jesus is now present as the promised Messiah who comes to baptize them with the Holy Spirit in fire. But what on earth is John talking about? What does it mean to be baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire? Well, I think that what John says about the threshing floor and the winnowing fork has a little something to tell us about this. In Jesus' day, there wasn't heavy farm machinery that would help them to efficiently harvest their crops. Those who farmed wheat would pick up the sheaths and then place them on what's called the threshing floor. That was simply the ground where everything would take place. Once the sheaths of wheat were laid on the threshing floor, they would have their oxen and their cattle come and trample all over them by walking on them. This would break up the husks and allow the grain to be separated from the chaff. Once this task was completed, the farmer would take a shovel or a winnowing fork, you've seen them, a pitchfork, and they would pick up the grain and the chaff and they would throw it up into the air and on a windy day, the chaff would be blown away and the grain would remain and that grain would be used for meal and for bread. The chaff, well the chaff wasn't useful for anything and it would be collected and burned. So John is alluding to Jesus separating that which is good and useful away from that which is not. Many would say that he is talking about judgment, of which he is, but the question is whether he's talking about eternal punishment or a fire that refines. And I think that Luke gives us a clue here. For After speaking about this judgment, he says this, And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. I have to tell you, I've grown up mostly in church most of my life, and I've heard a lot of sermons. Uh, Even though I've given a lot of sermons, I've heard a lot of sermons. And the church that I grew up in when I was young was a lot of sermons was on hellfire and brimstone. I don't know about you, but I heard a lot about hell 
less about heaven, but a lot about hell. In some ways, God scared the hell out of me so that I could be saved and come to Jesus. I tell people that come through our new members class, I've been saved more than anybody because I've walked down to the altar so many times in my life that if anybody in here is saved, it's got to be me. Got to be me. But I don't know about you, but I have never heard anyone talking about hell as good news. John was preaching good news. So I have to be inclined to believe that John is speaking about a fire that burns away what is bad and leaves behind what is good. You know, fire in itself is not always bad. I mean, it can certainly be destructive, as we've seen over the last couple of weeks out in Colorado as a thousand homes were consumed by a raging fire. But it's also useful to keep us warm in the wintertime when it's cold outside or to help us cook. Fire can purify water as we boil the impurities out of it so that it's safe for us to drink. It can also refine silver and gold, ridding them of their impurities and leaving them full of their intrinsic value. The prophet Malachi speaks of God's words to the Israelites, telling them this, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me, John the Baptist. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant who you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty, Jesus Christ. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by as in former days years. Jesus' baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire is God's cleansing of our sin and helping us to live in the ways we've been called to. His judgment is meant to save, to save the grain and to purify it by burning away the impurities so that its intrinsic value is clearly seen. John reminds us in his gospel, For God did not send his Son into the world in order to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Luke will later on talk about the Holy Spirit coming upon the disciples at Pentecost. We have the gospel of Luke and then the the book of Acts. Luke writes both of these. Acts is a second compendium for Luke. And he tells us about Pentecost. And when they gathered inside the upper room, it was there that the Holy Spirit came upon them like tongues of fire that ignited them with a passion to share the good news of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection to all who had gathered there for the festival in Jerusalem. And many of them came to believe that Jesus was the Messiah through the Spirit's work. Jesus's baptism is redemptive, for he desires to redeem us and claim us as his very own. He wants us to be fruitful as we live our lives in response to God's great mercy and grace for us. And the fact is, is that all of us have been created in the image of God. All of us are valuable and have great value to God. Which is why he came to save us from the sin that has tainted and distorted his image in us. I like to think of it in terms of a coin. 
Many of us have all kinds of coins, pennies, nickels, quarters, you name them. And sometimes when we have a collection of coins, some of those coins are shiny and new, and others are dirty and gross, and usually we kind of avoid those coins. But the truth is, even if a coin is dirty, it still has value. Its dirtiness doesn't change the fact that it has value. It just needs to be cleaned up. So are we to the Lord. As God's people, we must undergo the threshing floor of judgment so that the grain may be separated from the chaff. We were created good by God, but all of us carry around chaff. Sins of selfishness or of pride insecurities, worldly desires, and things that are opposed to the will of God. You and I need the refiner's fire in our lives to purify us from the sin that so easily entangles us and holds us captive from living in the ways of the Spirit. John says he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Many of us have been claimed by God in the waters of baptism, symbolizing our forgiveness of sins. Immersed and raised to new life. Immersed as sinners, raised to new life in Christ. If you've been baptized, physically immersed. I was baptized, immersed in a Baptist church. In the Presbyterian church, we don't do that with the font. We sprinkle you with it. It doesn't really matter how you baptize someone. It's about what God is doing in it. It really doesn't matter how you do it because God is the actor and initiator when we baptize anyone in the church together. It's a symbol of God's claim on our lives. God claims us. God forgives us. God seals us and marks us as his very own, as his people. As I tell our children every time we do a baptism, this water is God's sharpie marker that is permanent that says that you belong to him. And we don't have to rebaptize ourselves because, oh, well, I didn't mean it when I got baptized the first time or I didn't remember being baptized in the first place because my parents did it when I was an infant because God is the one who is active. It is God who means what he says and does what he says in baptism. Instead, we are called to remember our baptism to know that we belong to God, just as Israel had to be reminded of who they belonged to, not because of their birthrights, but because of God's gracious choosing. We are called to let Christ burn away the chaff of our sins so that we might freely live as spirit-led followers of Him. This requires us to self-reflect and to be reminded of the good news that we have in Jesus who refines us so that we might be the people that we were created to be. So in understanding Christ's judgment and grace correctly, we are enabled by the Holy Spirit to do what is right, to live like Jesus as we love and care for one another and for those who are often discarded or even considered unlovable. It means that we have purpose in our living And that we're not called to be entitled Christians who simply think that salvation in and of itself is nothing more than a get-out-of-hell-free card. But the salvation frees us up to love and to live 
in ways that glorify God and bear witness to the Lord who's claimed us and who saved us. Just as John exhorted the Israelites to produce fruits of righteousness, so are we to let our faith lead us in our daily living. For we follow the one whose sandals we are unworthy to untie. The one who loved us so much that he sought us out, called us by name, and gave his very life to redeem us. Friends, today, I encourage you to remember your baptism. For our baptism recenters us and reminds us of God's cleansing, forgiving us of our sins through his Holy Spirit and with fire, so that we might be the people he's called us to be. My prayer is that our lives would reflect a people who've been baptized by the Holy Spirit and fire of Jesus, and that our hearts too might burn with the Holy Spirit's fire that purifies us and leads us to live faithfully for Christ each and every day. Friends, may it be so this day and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.